0: Okay, we're in the midst of Colossians, and if you get nothing else out of Colossians, get this. Because I think the theme of the book is the all-sufficiency of Christ. Christ is enough. Christ is all we need. We've seen in chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 17, how... Christ is preeminent in creation and was very prominent. You know, he created everything and is over everything. And tied right to that in the next five verses, you know, 18 through 22, Christ is preeminent in redemption. Christ is all we need in redemption. Then in chapter 3 and in verse 11, we find that Christ is all in all. So the point Paul was trying to make to those in Colossae, and I think it applies to us as well, Christ is all we need. And there were those that were trying to pull them away from Christ. And, you know, Paul continues to warn them on that. We uh, just got started in chapter 2. But I want to read the first seven verses. uh, And then uh, delve into that. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude." We uh, we got through verse 1 uh, at the end of the last class period and we're looking at verse 2 and I did mention something that I don't think I got across terribly well because I was asked about this later. So I will uh, I will try this again. Uh, in verse 2, uh, that their hearts may be encouraged. The word encouraged there, sometimes it's translated comforted. Uh, we don't see that word used very often in the scriptures. But one place that we do find that same word, the same Greek word, is in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, Comfort and strengthen your heart in every good work and word. The word that is translated encouraged or comforted in the first part of verse 2 of Colossians 2. That same word is the first word in second Thessalonians 2:17 that's translated comforted or comfort. Uh, So those are the two words that are the same Greek word. And so uh, that can sometimes help us to understand uh, a little better what's being talked about there. But Paul was trying to, you know, encourage them uh, that they might be strengthened in heart. I think in view of the dangers that they were being faced with, with those who were you know, false teachers, and he didn't want them carried away by this false teaching. But he talks about that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. And you think about love, love is a uniting principle. Uh, It helps to unite the people of God, the love that we have for one another. And when we're united, it helps us to stand against false teaching. And so having that love to strengthen and encourage us helps us to oppose the false teaching. Uh, Colossians 3 14 uh, Paul calls love the bond of perfection Uh, and so so he emphasizes that love here as you know being helpful then he also in this verse talks about attaining to all the wealth that comes from full assurance and Uh, You know, we talked about the wealth and treasure a little bit last time. You know, we'll see treasure again in verse 3. But the idea of full assurance is also a word that's not used very often in the scriptures. But when we have this love for one another and this love for the truth, it helps us to be strengthened uh, to oppose, you know, false doctrine. Uh, from what I found, there were three other places that this word full assurance is used in the New Testament. The first time, uh, well, this is actually the first time, chronologically anyway, uh, but in First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, Says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So the word translated full conviction there is the same word that's translated full assurance in Colossians 2. And the other two times are in the book of Hebrews. Uh, The first time in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11 says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So full assurance there in Hebrews 6 is that same word. And then also in Hebrews 10 uh, and verse 22 let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water so this full assurance of faith can be very powerful for us and we need to have that conviction to be able to stand up Uh, So, Paul talked about how they had a true understanding. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Uh, But yet, in spite of this, Paul prayed that they might be filled with knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, verse 9 of chapter 1. So, we mentioned there, there's still room to grow. You know the Christian walk is a continual growing process and so we need to uh, need to be working at that and if we continue to grow it'll really help us so we need to be devoted to that and then he finishes up the the verse mentioning the mystery. And we talked about that uh, at the end of chapter 1. And here he clearly identifies, yeah, says resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. And so uh, again, Christ is the answer. So this wisdom was hidden only because it wasn't known Fully in Old Testament times. And even now, it's not something that's necessarily lying on the surface, but we need to seek after it diligently, like a man might search for a hidden treasure. And we looked last time at the parable of the hidden treasure in the field in Matthew chapter 13. So uh, so Paul makes reference to that as well. So he rejects the notion that spiritual knowledge exists anywhere outside of Christ. Uh, but the true knowledge is only within Christ. Okay, any thoughts or comments on that? Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's go on to verse 4. It says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments. Uh, the idea of delusion or being beguiled, some translations uh, use that. Apparently, Paul is concerned that they could be deceived. And this isn't just like a theoretical sort of thing. Uh, so they need to guard against that deceit. And we noticed a tie-in uh, before to Ephesians chapter four, where they needed to be grounded in the truth, so that they wouldn't be tossed true to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Uh, You know, by the slight of men and craftiness in the wiles of error, as, you know, Ephesians 4 and 14 talk about. So, you know, clearly that danger existed. And so Paul is trying to be, uh, uh, to warn them that what you're facing is real. So you need to, uh, To be grounded in the truth. And then in verse 5, you know, he mentions uh, what, you know, has been pointed out previously. He says, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Ran across this that I thought uh, described that first part pretty well. It says, His spiritual presence was made possible by the fact that he was united with them in Christ. Because of this union with them, Paul's physical absence from them did not in any way lessen his love for them, nor did it in the least dampen his tender feelings for them. Or for their spiritual welfare as brethren in the Lord. He had a sincere interest in them because he was spiritually one with them. A oneness made possible due to their common relation to Christ. And certainly, those spiritual ties, we can have that with one another, not just here. But all over the country, even all over the world. And having those ties and those feelings. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, conversations I've had with different people and, uh, you know, it's not unusual uh, when you travel around, you know, like we tend to do sometimes. Most of the time when I encounter Christians in other areas. I at least know somebody that they know. It's that. That's more normal than not for sure. And the expression goes. It's a small world. Yeah. But it's also a big family. And I think that describes it even better. So. So there's certainly these ties that we have together with the big family of God. And we certainly have things in common. And Paul, even though he hadn't met most of them, he had those feelings for them because they had those ties, their common relationship in Christ. And, you know, we can feel those same ties And those can be very helpful to us. Any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, Brett. Yeah, here comes the the mic. (laughs) Um,
1: So it's interesting, um, I see that, I was just thinking about those two, they're united in love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Part of me wonders if that's because they love one another. i oh
0: No, real good thoughts. Anything else? You know, what uh, Brad was talking there, you know, reminds me of an experience I had, you know, a number of years ago. The company I worked for was looking for a accounting manager uh, at our plant in uh, Dyersburg, Tennessee, West Tennessee. And... uh, the plant had interviewed some people, and like the top two candidates, came up here to interview with the uh, corporate offices. And I was I was involved in those interviews. And uh, you know, one of the two interviewees, you know, really stood out. You know, he just seemed like a really good guy, and you know, thought he thought he'd be a good fit. And and so we hired him. And then he came up here uh, for some training. And, uh, he, he reported to me at that time, at least dotted line, uh, in, uh, the accounting part of it. And so he was sitting in my office and we were talking and just kind of getting to know one another. And, you know, he had a couple of kids and he was asking about my family. And, uh, and I told him that, I have a daughter that, uh, is in college in Florida and, uh, he says, where? And I'm like, oh, it's, a, it's a small college, and, you know, just out of Tampa, I'm sure you've never heard of it. He says, well, what's the name of it? And I said, uh, Florida College. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with Florida College, and I'm like, really? And so uh, my head's turning, and he's already told me, you know, he lives in Tennessee now, but he's from Arkansas. And he never said anything about living in Florida. And so I'm like, uh, where do you go to church? And he's like, uh, the New Bern Church of Christ. And I'm like, ah, okay. Uh, Olin Kern used to preach there? Yeah. They're like, yeah, I know Olin. He was a Christian. And so that was an example where I felt like there was some connection there, uh, and it really was, and so, uh, but I'm like, if he's not from Florida and, you know, close to Temple Terrace, he's got to be a Christian to have heard of Florida College, so, uh, so that was, uh, that was really good, and uh, so we, uh, we always got along really well. Uh, You know, Brad also mentioned there, uh, talking about the good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ, you know, the end there in verse 5. Those two terms, uh, good discipline, or some translations say order, this was a military term that... Uh, depicted the orderly array of a military formation. You know most military formations, especially back then, had a particular you know way they lined up. Uh, I know back in the American Revolution you know, they tended to you know both sides lined up in a line and you know, a few people deep and the people in the front of the line, they fire then they drop down to their knees while they're reloading, and the next line fires, and you do about four lines of that, and then the the front line's ready to fire again. That's the way they did it. And made no attempt to hide or get undercover, uh, in part because those muskets were highly inaccurate. Uh, But... uh, you know, the way you won was you got more firepower concentrated in a particular area. And even if the musket wasn't very accurate, you get enough people uh, firing them. I mean, you're going to hit some people just by accident. Uh, so that orderly array of a military formation, that's the term that is meant, uh, that is used there for good discipline. And then the term stability, or sometimes translated steadfastness, it was also a military term talking about keeping a solid front before the enemy. And so I thought that was interesting. And so doing these things would help to make a firm foundation so that they, their faith would have uh, a solid basis uh, as verse 7 of chapter 2 talk about and then also in uh, chapter 1 and verse 23 we find the term being uh, grounded in the faith and so uh, Both of those kind of fit with the the military terms there. Uh, So if they were both orderly in their Christian behavior and standing firm in their faith, it would help them to overcome this enemy that was trying to deceive them and bring them down. Uh, And then Paul also is here talking about having that solid foundation the stability of your faith in Christ and so not faith a belief that Christ exists so much as a faith in Christ a faith grounded on the foundation of Christ that would help to make them strong and stable You've got to have a good foundation for something to be strong. A, a house that doesn't have a good foundation. You know, Jesus talked about that. The house that was built on the rock versus the house built on the sand. And without that solid foundation, that house built on the stand, sand couldn't withstand the uh, attacks of the, uh, of the weather. So uh, so I thought I'd share that with you as well. Okay, any comments, thoughts, questions on that? Okay. Let's go on to uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, it says, as You therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. There's a lot in here. Uh, first thing I wanted to point out, the the statement Christ Jesus the Lord literally should be translated the Christ Jesus, the Lord. And interestingly enough, those words together don't appear anywhere else in the scripture. This is the only place which I would not have guessed that. But the Christ Jesus, the Lord, only appears here in the New Testament. But I think there's a lot to be said about that term. He's the Messiah. He's that promised Messiah. And they're told that they need to walk in him. And the idea of walking is a continual process You know, walking in the path of Jesus, that's not a one-time thing. And I'd say it's something that we don't want to be going in and out of. Now, does that mean we'll always be successful at staying right on that path? No. But... We better make sure that we are walking in that direction. We may veer a little one way or another, but just like when you're driving a car, yeah, you don't always stay perfectly in the lines. Uh, You might veer out of the line a little bit and if you got a car like mine, and you got lane keeping assist on, it's going to tell you about it, <laughs> or maybe even steer you back, which that can be helpful at times. But but the general direction, you know, your your manner of life needs to be one of walking in Christ, uh, and so uh, that's. The point being made there. So we need to pattern our life in accordance with what Christ has taught us. Uh, And having that knowledge of Christ will help us to maintain our walk or our life in him. And he also wants the Colossians to know that Jesus is the Christ. And as the Christ, he's also the Lord of this universe. So he's not subject to other powers of the universe. Everything is subject to him. So again, he's reminding the readers of the absolute sufficiency of Christ and what they had received. They need to walk in that. And then he says, having been firmly rooted. Yeah, there's four things he's going to bring up here in verse 7. The first one, firmly rooted. When you think of something that's firmly rooted, you might think of a tree or a plant or a weed. You ever try to pull a dandelion? Not that easy. I'm told they have a tap root, goes down in the soil a ways, and so they're really hard to just pull up and get roots and all. So a lot of times, if you're trying to get rid of dandelions, you need to treat them with chemicals. Uh, to kill it off if you try pulling it up you're probably not going to get the root and guess what it's going to come back or there can be other weeds I mean I I pulled my share of weeds as a kid uh, and you'd grab a hold of the plant and you'd start pulling and sometimes the leaves would come off in your hand and there'd still be the, the stalk there and then you reach down and you try to get that stalk and and then it breaks off. And guess what? That thing's coming back. It's firmly rooted. And that's the idea here. We need to be firmly rooted. Planted in the soil uh, of Christ and if we're firmly rooted in christ it's not going to be easy for the false teachers to uproot us they may damage us some but if we've got that root in place we're gonna grow back so that's the first picture that's used here says being firmly rooted and now being built up and the idea of being built up is a continuous sort of action so where we're, we're growing you know being built up in Christ and it does say being built up in him which is a little different shade of meaning than being built up on him. The idea of on him is more of the foundation. But being built up in him gives us the idea that Christ is what binds us together. Uh, as we're all being built up in him that we have that connection so that's kind of the second metaphor that he gives and then the third one says and established in your faith and I think that's the idea of having that faith and then continuing in that and continuing to grow Uh, It's not a one-time thing, but one that we keep doing. Uh, I ran across this that I thought was pretty good. It says, progress does not consist in dropping the early truths of Christ Jesus the Lord for newer wisdom and more speculative religion, but in discovering even deeper lessons and larger powers in these rudiments, which are likewise the last and highest lessons which man can learn. So, the scriptures are are amazing. They're so deep. They're so rich. We We can read them. We can understand what it says. We can be obedient to it. And then we read it again. And again. And we see other things. It's like, yeah, I hadn't seen that before. It's like the more you dig into it, the more you learn. And the more you can benefit. The more you grow. And so it's a book that we continue to benefit from as we keep reading and studying. And I think that's the idea that Paul's trying to get across here. The idea of establishing in our faith, just as you were instructed. And then the last metaphor, overflowing with gratitude or abounding with thanksgiving, other translations say. Uh, And think about what do we have to be grateful for, to be thankful for? Really everything. Certainly, (coughs) the salvation that Christ gives us, the hope that we have, That anchors us. That promise of heaven. So if we're grateful and thankful. It'll prevent us from being caught up and drawn away into something new and different. So I think that gratitude is really important. The Israelites were very guilty of ingratitude. You think about all the things that God did for Israel. Going back to their days in Egypt, they were in bondage and slavery. They cried out to God. God heard. He delivered them. Delivered them with a mighty hand. They were slaves to the most powerful nation in the earth at that time. The Egyptians. And it wasn't that Israel built this big army and overcame their oppressors. God's the one that, that really did the fighting for them. You know, the plagues, each one of those demonstrated God's power over one of the Egyptian gods, one of their many gods. To the point that Pharaoh finally says, go. And they gave him all this stuff to take with them, And then they encounter the Red Sea and by that time Pharaoh's had a hardening of his heart again goes after him they complain you sent us out here to die Moses we're better off in Egypt then God parts the Red Sea for them they walk across the Egyptians try to follow and oops, they're drowned in the sea. You'd think after that experience, the Israelites would be grateful and it'd be smooth sailing after that. But it wasn't. There were many other times that they grumbled and complained. Then it came time to go into the promised land and it's like, nope, we can't do it. They're giants. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. So God says well you're not going in you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until another generation comes along so their ingratitude caused that generation to miss this promised land and then they finally get to go in they conquer the land again with God's help it wasn't their might But then after Joshua and the elders after him have all died, they forgot. God had made them lots of promises. And really giving them the promised land was a result of his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It wasn't that they earned that but he promised it and when God promises something he always delivers but then the period of the judges you get the cycle over and over again they fall away they're oppressed they call to God he rises up a judge to deliver them then they have peace for a while then the cycle repeats over and over And then eventually they asked for a king. And they had a few good kings and an awful lot of bad ones. But God had promised them that land forever as long as they were faithful. But again, their ingratitude gets to them and they fall away. So, this overflowing with gratitude, I think, can really help if we... We'll focus on what all God has done for us and be grateful for that. It'll really help us when times are difficult. So keep that in mind. It'll really help us. Okay, any thoughts or comments, questions on that? Okay, uh, let's look at verses 8 through 10, and that's probably all we're going to have time for tonight. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So he starts off this section with a warning. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Other versions might say, beware. Beware lest you be taken captive. So if there's any question whether Paul is warning, this verse should definitely remove all doubt. So, they need to be careful. It says, lest they be taken captive captive, Uh, just like an army might take someone captive, be carried off. You know, he talked about in chapter 1 that they'd been delivered from the power of darkness by being translated into the kingdom of God's dear son, chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul is fearful that they might lose this newfound freedom and be brought back into bondage again through deception. Because he says through philosophy and empty deception or deceit. So there are definitely those that are trying to deceive us. trying to lead us in the wrong direction. And so we need to be on guard against that so that we do not become deceived. We need to be able to distinguish between uh, hollow and uh, deceptive speculation and the true wisdom and knowledge of God. we have the revealed word of truth as chapter 1 and verse 5 talks about. We need to make sure that we avoid all those other things. We need to stick to the word. And he's not here right now so I can talk about him. That's one thing I really like about Tommy. He's in the word. His lessons are. He's in the scriptures. He's digging into that. His classes. He's digging into the word. That's what we need to do. And the word is so deep. It's not like. We're going to run out of material. Because the deeper we dig. The more understanding we get. So, I encourage you to do that personally as well. And I try to do that as well. The more we do that, the better off we'll be. So, and then in the middle of the verse, according to the tradition of man, so we've got a kind of a contrast. You have the tradition of men versus the tradition of God. And the difference is where does it come from? One comes from God. One comes from men. Should be pretty obvious which one we should be following. But he says, there are some that would try to take you captive by teaching the traditions of man according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. And following the principles of the world will get us in trouble. That's why we've got to stick to the Word. Now, Paul probably had some pretty specific teachings in mind, and we may not even know what all those are, and I don't know that we have to limit our applications to those specifics. But anything that is based on worldly wisdom and not God's Word is dangerous, and we need to avoid that. And then in verse 9, it says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Again, Christ is all they need. We have what we need to be complete in him. Okay, thank you for your comments. We will pick up there on Sunday.